This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. The Informer Daily is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. At Joy 94.9, we'd like to pay our ongoing respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. This is the Informer Daily for Wednesday, the 13th of May, 2020. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Today, Sam Elkin from the LGBTIQ Legal Service joins us to talk about the Change Your ID Day event that they're hosting online on Monday. There are some new resources available from Working It Out, a Tasmanian group aimed at helping the community stay together while we're physically isolating. The LGBTI folk are known for their resilience, but also their ability to support one another. And, uh, you know, some members of the community have been through terrible times in the past. So I think you're just keeping hold of that spirit. But first, this bulletin. This is Dee Mason with Joy 94.9's COVID-19 update for Wednesday the 13th of May. Another death yesterday brings Australia's death toll to 98. The 81-year-old woman from New South Wales had been a passenger on the Ruby Princess cruise ship. Hers is the 22nd death associated with the Ruby Princess, which is at the heart of Australia's largest COVID-19 cluster. Chief Medical Officer Brenda Murphy is requesting advice from paediatric experts on a new disease that has been infecting children in the United States and might be linked to COVID-19. The unknown disease has symptoms similar to toxic shock syndrome and Kawasaki disease and has killed three children so far. National Cabinet will be briefed on the potentially fatal illness during their next meeting. Russia now has the second highest number of COVID-19 cases worldwide, with over 232,000 confirmed. Russia has been recording over 10,000 new cases per day for 10 days. This comes as President Vladimir Putin's spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, has tested positive for the virus and is undergoing treatment. Many senior officials in the Russian government have tested positive. President Putin has remained isolated in his residence outside of Moscow. A South Sudanese protection camp has recorded its first two cases of COVID-19, according to the United Nations. The camp is situated in South Sudan's capital, Juba. Protection camps were set up across South Sudan to house displaced civilians during the civil war. Although the civil war ended five years ago, the camps still shelter more than 190,000 people. The camp in Juba has 30,000 residents. COVID-19 spreading across these camps is concerning as they are often in remote locations, have travel restrictions and lack the medical equipment needed to treat the disease. Western Australians are being asked to document their lives during the pandemic by sharing personal stories and photos as part of a project to record this momentous time in history. Archivists at Western Australia's State Library and Museum are already filing away images of empty freeways, Centrelink queues and hand-painted signs of hope. Queensland's next stage of restrictions easing will come into effect on the weekend, allowing pubs and RSLs to open and serve up to 20 patrons. But to be allowed entry, people must prove they live within 500 kilometres of the venue they're entering. This could have the unforeseen benefit of getting more accurate data on population numbers in regional Queensland by forcing people to update their residential information in order to get a pint. 
Victorians are enjoying their first day of relaxed restrictions, allowing them to gather outside in groups of 10 and have up to five guests inside their homes. Students are also gearing up to return to school in two weeks, giving their parents a break from homeschooling. You're listening to The Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Working It Out is a Tasmanian organization that is Tasmania's only LGBTIQ plus support agency, and they've developed some new resources called Working It Out Together to assist people while we're socially and physically distancing. I spoke with Lynn Jarvis from Working It Out Together this morning. Here she is. So um, our resource is called Working It Out Together, which is a Tasmania-specific, COVID-19-specific program to help members of the LGBTIQ plus communities connect with with one another and provide support. And what drove the need for this? So initially, as the pandemic started to sort of um, to, to play itself out, we were hearing from from different sources that members of the community were feeling particularly isolated at that some of their traditional spaces where they may feel safe to interact and engage had disappeared. Uh, so I did a sort of a, a quick consult around the state with different community groups to see whether perhaps a service like this one would be a good initiative at this time and the overwhelming feedback was that it was. So, yeah, so we, we decided, to, decided to go ahead and, and put something up together. Mm. And it's launching today, correct? Oh, look, we actually what we have we have launched already. Mm-hmm. It's just that I didn't want to promote it too too much because we did get a lot of interest. It was a couple of weeks ago. We got a lot of interest early, and we're only a small organisation, and so I didn't want to get overwhelmed. So in fact, we did launch a couple of weeks ago, but we've kind of kept it a bit quiet so that we can catch up and make sure that we, you know, we're not um, overwhelmed with um, interest. Ah, a soft launch. That's always good. <laughs> soft launch, yeah. yeah. So look, um, but you know, so now we have some volunteers on board already and, and trained up to go. So obviously we're happy to have more volunteers, but we're also particularly um, shouting out to anybody in the community that wants to connect, whether it be by phone, internet, um, as some restrictions ease, we can do uh, walking buddies or sort of footpath chats, that kind of stuff. So mm. yeah, um, yeah, I really encourage anybody who's feeling a bit, you know, perhaps isolated, wants to connect with people that to, to look into the program. Mm. And so what are your volunteers doing? So at the moment, uh, mostly just social chats. Um, um, walking buddies has been quite um, popular. Um, uh, we've had uh, deliveries of food hampers as well, or so both delivering food hampers, but also putting people in touch with um, uh, food services. So the other part of our project is to gather together all relevant information in one spot. So I don't know about you, but here we're getting information coming from left, right and centre, so keeping mm. a track of that's been a bit difficult. So what we've done is to put together a couple of resources that are both specific to the LGBTIQ plus communities, but also um we're, we're, we're relevant, specific to Tasmania. So people have got a sort of one-stop shop place to go to say whether there's groups they can connect with or services they can plug into. Um, so that's sort of the other aspect of the project. Does the LGBTIQA plus community face some different challenges than those on the mainland of Australia? Uh, look, I, I don't think necessarily different. I think, you know, we have people in remote 
remote parts of the state that that is always difficult i think for people in regional areas so i think the issues that people in tasmania experience are probably similar to other parts of australia that are, are, are regional or, or remote so yeah i think um on the other hand you know we are a small state um, a close community so that can work in our favor as well mm. have you been doing any work around um, people who are affected by bushfires this past summer no, so Tasmania largely this summer, this past summer, we escaped the bushfires. We had them the summer before quite badly. So in 2019, we had quite bad fires. But in fact, in 2020, this year, it was actually a reasonably wet summer here in Tasmania. So the part of Tasmania where I live was still green grass and um, yeah, a reasonable amount of rain. So we were very fortunate in that we haven't had that double whammy this year. Mm. Uh uh, sorry, I'm so tired this morning. Um, uh, what other stuff, what other activities does Working It Out do? Okay, so Working It Out is Tasmania's only really dedicated LGBTIQ plus support agency. So we offer one-to-one um, -one direct support for individuals or families. We run uh, peer support groups. We do education and training. We sit on most of, or all of the government LGBTIQ plus liaison groups. So we advise government. We work with um, uh, local organisations. Um, we work in the school sector. So we are partly funded by the Department of Education to support, to support students and schools to be inclusive. Um, so we do... Uh, we also work in the aged care sector, delivering the Silver Rainbow Project. So we do lots of stuff. Hmm. What can you tell me about the Silver Rainbow Project? So the Silver Rainbow uh, Silver Rainbow Project's been going for a couple of years now, a few years now, and it delivers training to aged care sector workers in uh, LGBTIQ plus inclusivity. Um, so um, yeah, that's a program that's been funded by the federal government and is Australia wide and. Um, Organisations in each state are funded to to deliver. So we're also in, 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 um, delivering another project in in partnership with the Council of Ageing, and that is a, about the aged care know-how trial. It's all a bit complicated, but basically it's um, helping um, LGBTIQ plus folk navigate the aged care system itself, mm -hmm. because that can be a daunting task, particularly when you put the added layer of uncertainty, be uncertainty around whether you'll be accepted and whether you'll be able to live your authentic self in those environments. So um, that's also another important project that we're doing in the aged care sector. Stay safe out there, everybody, and look after each other. I think, you know, one of, one of the motivating factors for our Working It Out Together project is the fact that the LGBTI folk are known for their resilience but also their ability to support one another. And, uh, you know, some members of the community have been through terrible times in the past. So I think you're just keeping hold of that spirit. And if anybody wants to know more about our Working It Out Together project, just go to the Working It Out um, website, which is www.workingitout.org.au. Well, great. Thank you so much for your time this morning. That's a pleasure. You have a good one. Thank you very much. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Monday in Victoria is Law Week. It's a time when the Victoria Law Foundation coordinates, sponsors, and promotes a number of different activities around law. And the LGBTIQ Legal Service is joining in. I spoke with Sam Elkin about their Change Your ID Day webinar that they're hosting on Monday.
Yes, so on Monday the 18th of May at 1pm to 2.30pm we're running our second ever Change Your ID Day event. Um, So last year we had it in real life um, over in North Melbourne, which was a one-stop shop where trans and gender diverse people could change their ID in a safe and inclusive environment. And this year, due to the um, health pandemic, we're going to be doing a virtual version of that event. So uh, LGBTIQ people, particularly trans and gender diverse people and those that support them, can log in at one o'clock on Monday and learn how to change their ID, given the recent birth certificate law reform that's just come in. And you have a number of people joining you. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a couple of representatives from births, deaths and marriages who will provide, you know, a bit of a summary of the the nuts and bolts of how you actually change your ID now and what changes have occurred. And we'll also be having Margot Fink, who's the Executive Director of Transgender Victoria, who will explain a bit about the long road to this important law reform. And Felicity Marlowe, who has long been involved with Rainbow Families Victoria, who will be speaking about the law reform from the point of view of, uh, as a parent, of a non-binary child and, and what it means for them and their family. Mm. We spoke with the registrar um, on the 1st of May when the, the changes came in. Do you have any idea how many people might have applied so far? Look, I don't have any stats on that and I'd be very interested to know, but certainly like we've had dozens of people contacting our service and asking for you know where the forms are and things like that. So I could say there's been strong interest from the community, um, in, including many parents contacting us on behalf of their trans or gender non-conforming children, wanting to know how they can change their child's um, identification before they go to university or before they finish high school so that they can have all their paperwork when they start their adult life all in the one name and all in the one gender. So, yeah, that's been really exciting. For people that aren't really connected with this issue, why is this important? So what the changes to the um, birth certificate laws mean is that um, trans and gender diverse people or people that need to change their identification documents uh, to a different gender other than the one that they were assigned at birth will now be able to do so without uh, having surgery to their reproductive organs. So that was a very high barrier for a lot of people to um, actually change their identification. Uh, certainly the cost is a factor. Those kind of surgeries cost up to $100,000 in Australia and involve you know, a certain level of risk and can certainly involve um, infertility being the outcome. So it's a pretty big life decision for somebody to make. Uh, and they may not have access to funds to do it. They may not want to do it. They might be fine with their body the way that it is and don't feel the need to have that kind of intervention. Um, or they might not be, you know, engaging in a medical transition at all. So for non-binary people, for example, um, they might want to have their non-binary gender identity affirmed by uh, the state of Victoria, but might not necessarily want to engage in any kind of hormonal changes or surgical changes and just want to have their identities respected. So it's really um, fantastic that the state of Victoria has really come out um, to support people uh, being able to self-identify who they are and um, how they identify without having that really, really high medical bar in order to be able to change your documents. Do you happen to know when the ability to change your gender after surgery came in in Victoria? 
I actually don't know the answer to that. I'm sure that um, I'm sure that Transgender Victoria would be able to tell you that because they've really been involved in this law reform campaign for over 20 years. But certainly, it's still the case in New South Wales and Queensland and in Western Australia that you still need to have surgery to your reproductive organs. Um, I think in WA, it's any kind of surgery, so it's a little bit more flexible, but there's still a long way to go in terms of pushing this law reform piece nationally so that we have uniformity so that people, for example, that might have been born in New South Wales but that live in Victoria have the same rights. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about, um, you know, the requirement for surgery. It just got me thinking that, um, you know, the LGBTIQA plus community in general is underserved by or has less access to health or accesses health services less so that there's that extra bar of not only is it a little bit more difficult to access health services generally, you then have to go through and get particularly invasive surgery to be able to change your birth certificate so that you're not, you know, your old name and then now you're your new name. Oh, yeah. I mean, just to sort of step it out, it would mean um, contacting a GP and getting a referral going through either a psychiatric evaluation or a clinical psychologist evaluation to get the sign-off to have surgery, then it would mean undergoing surgery. And for somebody like me who is assigned female at birth but identifies as a transmasculine person, that would involve having a hysterectomy, which would obviously make me medically infertile. And then it would mean um, having between two or three extra surgeries, uh, you know, in mm. that area, um, which would cost over $100,000. And um, at the moment, there's only a couple of providers in Australia. The one that I'm aware of is in Brisbane. So it obviously involves travel to a different state, travel costs. So, mm. yeah, they estimate that for transmasculine people to have those kind of surgeries, it would be upwards of $100,000, um, not including travel and other expenses. So mm. a huge amount of money. And given that we tend to be um, unemployed or underemployed or, um, you know, have a whole lot of other the chronic conditions and vulnerabilities, which make it more difficult for us to, you know, develop significant amounts of wealth. Um, yeah, it's just a huge barrier. And, and certainly most people I know haven't either wanted to or haven't been able to afford those kind of surgeries. So mm. it's a huge um, thing that the Victorian government has done to at least pre pre prevent that from um, stopping us from getting our birth certificates right at the very least. It's got me thinking, is... is is there a human rights issue involved with, you know, having not being able to reproduce? Well, and like uh, being forced to get into that, like if you want to do this, you lose this kind of a thing. I think that that is a human rights issue, and that's why it's so important that the Victorian government has removed that barrier, so that now you know you can get identification in your correct gender without having to undergo certain procedures like that, which could render somebody infertile. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it certainly wasn't, you know, a requirement um, mm. in order, you know, like people can walk around with identity documents that are in um, inconsistent genders. So it wasn't a sort of requirement by the government as such, mm. but it has such a flow-on effect to your employment. Um, you know, if you get a working with children check, you have to often provide your birth certificate. 
um, you know, for police clearance, when going to university, people usually have to provide their, you know, primary identification documents. So mm. people are always being asked to, you know, whip out their birth certificate for one reason or another. And that's when the risk factor of discrimination occurs. When somebody um, chooses to you know, get a working with children check, for example, they might need to do that for a potential employer or for a university course. Um, when going to university, you often have to provide your birth certificate. Uh, when applying for a mortgage, you certainly do, because I know I had to go through that experience. And those are the times when, um, you know, the opportunity for discrimination, unfortunately, can still occur when people see that you you have a transgender history. Um, they might start to tr treat you differently, outright discriminate against you. We just may not want, um, you know, your mortgage broker <laughs> to have that personal information about you, given that it's completely irrelevant to, you know, the transaction you're trying to make. So mm. that's the importance of this birth certificate law reform. It, it gives um, trans and gender diverse people and other people control over when and where and how they tell people about their transgender history. Can you tell me about other work that your centre is doing? Yes. So the LGBTIQ Legal Service has been um, operating for two years now. and We're just coming to the close of our period of having a funded health justice partnership, which we ran in partnership with Thorn Harbour Health, which has been a really wonderful program where um, we were able to assist LGBTIQ identifying people uh, with a whole bunch of their legal issues, so be it um, criminal law, be it tenancy issues, Centrelink appeals, uh, NDIS stuff, you know, we've been there to provide direct legal help to people that need it. Mm -hmm. So um, we're really proud of the work that we've done. We're about to release a legal needs analysis of the LGBTIQ community in Victoria so that you know, the government and LGBTIQ organisations and community members can understand what the breadth of legal need is out there because, you know, we know that the LGBTIQ community has more vulnerabilities to poor mental health because there's been research done on that. Um, we know that the LGBTIQ community can experience certain kinds of discrimination in relation to healthcare and treatment because there's been research about that. But there hasn't been comprehensive research done about what the legal issues are, so whether we're more likely to, um, you know, have to go to court, whether we're more likely to have either be um, the victim of family violence or a respondent to a family violence matter that goes to court. Um, so we've got a really rich data source now that we just want to let people know um, about um, mm. so that we can, you know, show the way that, the LGBTIQ community is experiencing the law in Victoria so that ultimately we can make things like the courts, the police systems um, and the broader justice system work better to meet the needs of our diverse communities. What sort of things are you seeing during lockdown at the legal centre? Certainly um, all of my colleagues who work in the legal assistance sector have um, indicated that there's been an increase in legal need that relates to the home. So whether that involves living with unsafe people in the home, whether that be um, a family of origin or an intimate partner, uh, where there's family violence occurring. Um, obviously, you know, lockdown conditions mean that uh, existing sort of tensions and controlling behaviours are going to be exacerbated. So um, there's certainly um, an increase in issues in relating to family violence. Um, because there's been so much uncertainty around tenancy laws in Victoria up until I think just yesterday when the regulations have finally come out, there's been heaps of inquiries about, you know, can I be evicted? Um, I've received a notice to vacate. Is it legal? Can my landlord 
um, you know, lock me out of the house during a pandemic, mm. um, heaps of questions around, yeah, home and access to um, supports around tenancy issues. So that's been a real thing. And just a lot of uncertainty. Um, and I'm sure, you know, all of your listeners will have had these same questions over the last couple of months. But, you know, like, can I visit my partner that I don't live with? What if I have multiple, um, you know, intimate partners? Do I have to bunk down with one person and not the other? Is that discriminatory? Mm. Um, and certainly a lot of anxieties from particularly marginalised parts of the LGBTIQ community around over-policing um, and, yeah, just a real high level of anxiety about interacting with police. Um, so, yeah, there's been a lot of kind of new issues that have come out as a result of the pandemic and um, we've been trying to play a role in community legal education as well because it's often the case that people don't necessarily have an existing legal problem, but they're really worried about having one. So they're, they're not leaving the house at all because they're worried about being stopped by the police and they're worried about, um, you know, being victimised because they look different or don't have all of their identity documents in the consistent gender um, for example, which can all always, you know, aggravate a situation and, and make things more stressful for a person that might already be quite marginalised. The COVID-19 situation and it looks like very high unemployment are are going to affect us for some time. Uh, do you see that changing your priorities significantly? Because we're a community legal centre, I guess the bread and butter of the work that we do is working with people that are financially disadvantaged. So um, we're not the kind of, you know, legal outfit that serves the top end of town. So I think that over the next, you know, two years, there will be a massive increase in demand on services like ours because unfortunately people will be more, um, you know, stretched. So there might be more, um, you know, bankruptcy, debt issues. Um, obviously there's the infringement fines which are coming out that we're seeing now. Um, people having issues around getting on income support, such as New Start or the Disability Support Pension. These are all legal issues that organisations like the LGBTIQ Legal Service can help people with. So I guess we just expect to see um, a more, more legal need out there as opposed to pivoting to do a different kind of work than we did previously. But I do think there's going to be a greater need for people to get advice around bankruptcy, unfortunately. So um, certainly, you know, we'd be able to connect people with services that do that sort of work as well. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? Like, are you doing anything for Law Week or? I'd yes. So um, our Change ID Day event is an official Law Week event. So if people are interested in joining that live stream, they can jump onto the Law Week website. And also from the 18th, so from Monday, you'll be able to see an interview with me and the um, Executive Director of the Victoria Law Foundation, where we explain um, a bit about the LGBTIQ legal service and a bit more about the legal need that exists in the community. So if you are interested, please do jump onto the LawNet website. I think it's lawnet, uh, lawweek.net.au, and um, you'll be able to have a listen to me uh, rabbiting on about legal need in our community. <laughs> but wait, you're doing that right now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And anything else you'd like to mention? Uh, no. Um, I hope everybody's uh, staying safe and, and feeling good out there. And if you do have um, a legal issue that you want some support around, you can just jump onto our website, which is lgbtiqlegal.org.au, and there's a contact form that you can fill in there, and um, one of us will get in touch with you as soon as we can.
That's Sam Elkin from the LGBTIQ Legal Service and also the Joy Show Transgender Warriors. That's all for us today. I'd like to thank Nicholas Kamenier-Sandry, Emily Johnson, Dee Mason, Dina Curie, Rachel Tyler-Jones, Jordan Johnstone, and everyone at the Community Radio Network for their help and production support. I'm your host, Arian Potts, and we'll be back tomorrow. Mahalo. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.